Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. This Sunday, our sermon was entitled, Greater Mercy. Noah had the task of preparing an ark for 120 years that would save only his family. Despite his prophetic role, no one repented, no one cried out to God, no one but his family was saved. Yet, God sustained and rescued him as God's people on God's mission in a world hell-bent on being hell-bound. Noah's story is meant to hold out hope for us. We are to be assured that the same God who carried Noah through it all will carry for us as we fulfill his call to go to all the peoples. In fact, we can be assured that not only will God keep and care for us, but God will do a greater work of salvation through his church than he ever did for Noah. There was a great mercy for Noah, and there's a great mercy for us. Join us as we worship together. Live on the face of all the earth, for in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and everything that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all the Lord commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of the waters came upon the earth. So that's that starting point. Who's the main actor? It's about God, right? Noah's in there, but it's God who's speaking. Noah, take your family in the ark now. And he speaks to him and, and, and says to him that in seven days he's going to send rain. And so they do. They go in. It's all arranged. In the 600 year, verse 11 says, in the 600 year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened. Now I want you to look at verse 16. I'm going to go there in a little bit. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as who commanded? As God commanded. Now here's a key line I want you to see this morning. And then what happened? God shut him in. Okay, we're going to just meditate a little bit on that together this morning. And so God does. He sends the flood. He blots out all of humanity. Down at the end of chapter 7, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left. And those who were with him in the ark, verse 24, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. And then in chapter 8, but God. One of the most important phrases in the whole Bible. But God. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God made us alive in Christ Jesus. Here it is. The flood, the destruction, the darkness. But God did what? He remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow on the earth and the waters subsided. And then there's the process of the drying out of the earth and the liberating of Noah. And I want you to go down verse 20. After Noah goes out of the ark at the end, it says in verse 20, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, who spoke? The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. 
Now, that's an interesting passage. We're going to talk about that a little bit because, as you know, in the New Testament, in 2 Peter, we're told that God is going to destroy the earth again. Not by flood, but by fire. And he, and he hearkens back to this story of Noah. So you stop and you have to ponder for a little bit. Well, God said he wouldn't do it, obviously, by water, but he is going to destroy it again at the end of time by flood. And Noah becomes a picture of us getting ready with urgency to fulfill what God's called us to do because there's a day of judgment coming. So in Matthew, we have Jesus talking about in the last days it will be like the days of Noah. Right? Everybody's eating and drinking and getting, giving, being given in marriage. And then the end comes. We're told in 1 Peter that the ark, Noah being saved through the ark, is symbolic of baptism. That as Christ came to save us, as we come into Christ into the ark of Christ, so to say, in the, in the midst of the flood of God's judgment and wrath, we are saved through baptism, not the external washing of water, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And then, of course, in 2 Peter chapter 3, it tells us that we ought not to presume upon the patience of God. And some people will mock and say, well, where's this second coming, this ultimate destruction? And he says, don't get confused about God's not sending his son back the second time yet. Because a day is what with the Lord? A thousand years and a thousand years as a day. And he is not slow. He's just patient. And one day he'll come. So that's how Noah is portrayed in the scriptures. But here's what I want us to see. As God's people, and this is a key line I'm reiterating over and over again. God has a mission. God has a purpose. We're not creating a mission and asking God to join us in Waterbrook's plans. God has a mission that begins in Genesis 1 and goes to the end of Revelation that is to glorify His Son and save a people for Himself. God has a mission and we are called on His mission. So as God's people on God's mission in a world that's increasingly hostile to the gospel, Noah's story is meant to hold out hope for us. Got that? We are to be assured that the same God who carried Noah through it all will care for us as we fulfill his call to go to all peoples. So don't focus on the darkness, focus on the light. Don't focus on the world, focus on the God who is Lord over all the world. In fact, we can be assured that not only will God keep and care for us, God will do a greater work. That's what I want you to see today. God is going to do a greater work through his church. He protected Noah. He's doing more than that through us. And that's what's being taught. There was great mercy for Noah. There's greater mercy for us. So in Romans chapter 8, was just read earlier by Heather, and we memorized Romans 28. Anybody want to say the fighter verse for this week? Bruce? Oh, you jumped, you've jumped ahead. You're 29. Go back to 28. Um, we know that. And, and we know that all things work together for good. Right. Um, for those? For those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Right. Perfect. Isn't that a great statement? That's Romans chapter 8. We know this. And Paul isn't saying we don't know this. We know that all things work together for good. 
for those that love God and are called according to His purpose. And so as you think about that text of Scripture, does that shape us? Because we fear, number one, we're going to get in circumstances that are difficult. Here's the other thing we have to be honest. We're afraid that God is going to put us in situations that are over our heads. Right? That's, that's the thing about the call to mission. When Jesus comes and follows and, call, and calls people to follow Him, He says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to do what? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. And so sometimes we wonder in our heads and in our hearts, God, are you going to be putting me in a position that's too difficult for me? You ever felt that? You look at somebody else's life and you think, man, if that was me, I wonder what I would do. You see videos and pictures. If God called you a certain place and time, you think, man, if I went there, I don't know if I'd have what it takes to be there. We begin to be more conscious of ourselves and we begin to be hesitant with the will of God because we doubt God himself. We doubt that God, if he calls us to something, will give us the grace for that thing which he calls us to do. We don't say it, but don't we ever fear it? Don't we fear that somehow the world's going to get really dark and we're going to be caught in a real difficult world and we won't know what to do? And it'll overwhelm us and fear gets in? Don't we get afraid when we think that obeying God or, or advancing the gospel may cost me my life? We're not just talking about going to some dangerous country. We're just talking about what if, what if I pray for the salvation of my kids and the salvation of my kids involves me going to glory. We start to get a little hesitant in all of this. We get a little fearful that somehow God will call us to something that we will not have the grace to do, to live through, to fulfill. We fear the Lord in the wrong way. Do you ever fear the Lord in the wrong way? You ever say to God, God, anything but this? Any place but there? Anytime but now, in this world. Now what I want you to do is I want you to come to the Scripture because what Moses is doing in Genesis, what God is doing with Noah, is showing that God will never call you to something where He will not give you the grace to get through it and to thrive through it and accomplish it. And it's liberating and freeing. And I want you to feel it today. I'm not asking you to feel strong. You understand what I'm not doing? I'm not telling you it's going to be easy. I'm not saying that it'll all, when we say we know that all things work together for good, do you know what the all things are in Romans chapter 8? The suffering he talks about earlier in the chapter. We are, later in the chapter he says we are like being offered like sheep to the slaughter day after day. And you think, what, 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 God, why, how? This is not, does God write a radically different story for your life? then you would write for your life. You'd strap yourself in. But you shouldn't be gritting your teeth and going, okay, God, not my will, but thy will be done. Be looking to God and saying, God, I know your way is right and good and that all things, you under all things. It's not easy, is it? I'm not asking you to pretend this morning. I'm asking you to peer into the word of God. I'm asking you to pray over the promise of God. I'm asking you to look at this text of Scripture and have God encourage and comfort you. So here's what I want to look at in this text of Scripture. I want us to see what God does to give mercy to Noah in a time that's very dark, in a time of judgment, 
and wrath. And I believe, here's the other thing I want to just put as a sideline for us. When we think about the wrath of God coming upon the world, ultimately God coming to judge the world, we sometimes forget, according to Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is already present in the world. Some of the explanation of what you see around you, according to Romans chapter 1, is the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. And so sometimes you ask, why is it so dark? Why is it so evil? And it's because God has given us over to our idols. Right? We have exchanged the glory of the Creator for created things. And some of the explanation is we live in dark times because wrath is here. And the wrath is not going to overcome us. The gospel, Christ has already overcome. And so we need to see that in this text. So let's go back to Romans or Genesis chapter 7 and verse 1. The very first thing it says, God said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you're righteous before me in this generation. He tells them to take, his, in seven days, he's going to flood the earth. Then go down to chapter 7 verse 6, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. Now, if you haven't done any studying on this, you'll know there's a little bit of discussion around this because God had said in the previous chapter that he was tired of the wickedness of men. He was going to deal with it. And how long was there till the flood was going to come? 120 years. Just look at the previous chapter. Go back to chapter 6 where God says this. It says in, in chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness Sorry, verse 3. The Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. So when this text is written by Moses, if you look at the end of chapter 5, verse 32, how old is Moses? He's 500 years old. When the flood comes in chapter 7, in verse 6, how old is Noah? 600 years old. How long is that? It's 100 years, not 120 years. And so some people have said, well, we don't have to be really technical about this, which you could say because maybe God had already decided that before Noah had his sons. And so if you really looked at it, it could be 120 years. This is my suggestion to you. You can take it for what it's worth. Read, study your Bible and own it. But this is what I think. I think God shortened the time because God does that. God says something. And then God won't always completely do exactly what he's saying out of mercy and grace. Remember when he sent Noah or Jonah to Nineveh? What was the announcement Jonah was to say to Nineveh? Right. Judgment. In just a short period of time, God is going to destroy Nineveh. Repent. Did they repent? Yeah. Did God destroy Nineveh then? No, he didn't because of God's mercy in that situation. I think, this is my conjecture in this one, that the Lord shortens the time here. And this is important for us to understand because last week we saw that God waited, even with the time of Israel when he promised Abraham that, he, that this nation would be born, but they would spend 400 years until the enemies of God, evil, got to a maximum point of intolerance with God. He says in that, you know, God on one hand is really patient, but his patience will run out, right? But also what we need to see in this text of Scripture is that God is not only moving because of the wickedness of people, but God has moved out of mercy towards the miserableness of his people. 
And so the Bible teaches us that God will shorten the misery that comes upon the world in order to spare his own people. He'll do that. So let me just show you a text of Scripture. Maybe I have it up there. Matthew chapter 24, verse 21 to 22. And so Jesus is talking about the end of time and the judgment coming upon the nations. And in verse uh, 21 to 22, it says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as had never, never been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. So that's the, is that a dark description of what the end of time will be like? The end of time, there will be a, a, such a distressful time globally in the world that it will be unlike any other time in human history. And the question for the people of God is, will we be able to stand? Will we be able to endure? It will be a time of, and you, and, and you see in the warning of Jesus, there will be people who turn and reject and go away and suffer and turn on one another. It's a time of great opposition to the church of God and the, and the people of God. But notice what it says at the end. If those days had not been what? Cut short, no human being would be saved. And in the middle of that kind of very dark situation, we have this act of God where God comes in and he, he ministers out of mercy to the brokenness. The truth of the matter is, in the story of Genesis, we do not have a picture that if you just double down and get tough and grit your teeth, you're going to make it through. The truth of the matter is, it gets so dark, so hard, and so evil, if you were left to yourself, you wouldn't make it. The point is, we're not to look at Noah when it says that Noah was a righteous man and say, well, God spared Noah because Noah could stand strong in the middle of it all. You go to Gen or, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, and it says that Noah became an heir of those who inherited the righteousness that comes by faith. He was righteous because he trusted God, not himself. And here's one of the things that ought to comfort us in the middle of this. God is not just callously pouring out his wrath in anger against the world in order to bring judgment. God is seeing the suffering of his people, and he's moved with mercy towards it. And so that's the starting point. God will actually be merciful towards the struggling of his servant seeking to remain faithful in an increasingly dark and difficult world. So you need to be mindful of that. Don't get a theology where your God is dominantly angry and wrathful. So a lot of people have that. And you're just sitting there thinking, well, God is like my father, not my father, but you know, you think of your father or a father who's always having temper tantrums. He's just ticked off and it doesn't matter who he hurts, so we're all caught in the crossfire. It's not at all what's going on here. God is holy. He is just. He is put up with idolatry and wickedness. And it says in chapter 6, it was brutal violence like you hear in North Africa and Nigeria. Some parts of the world today where the violence, North Korea, where some of the violence and the depravity is so great. God has been seeing that and it makes him sick and he's moved by justice because of his, he's a peacemaking God, but at the same time, his eye is on his people. And whether or not it says it here, it definitely says it in Matthew chapter 24. Thank God that he's watching us and he will not put his people past the breaking point. Have you ever wondered if God would do that to you? You ever thought maybe he'd put me over the edge 
bad theology, friends. God does break his people. God does humble his people. But God never crushes his people. He never forsakes his people. He never abandons his people. And he's always merciful. So if you're here today and you feel like you're on the edge, I've been there in my life. There are moments in my life as a pastor, as a father, where I'm thinking, God, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can do this much longer. I can feel the oxygen vacating my lungs at times as I'm walking through grief and sorrow and trying to look after my girls and watching them grieve, thinking, I don't know. And I felt like I got pretty close to the, the precipice, but this is what I can testify to you. That the Lord lifted me up out of the mud and mire, and he put my feet upon a rock. And he placed a new song in my heart, a song of praise unto my God. Isn't that what God does? He's not going to let you not suffer with people. He will work through suffering. But my dear friends, He will not crush you. And He will not let you go. And He will not forsake you. Praise God. He will not do that. And so He will shorten the, the misery in order to protect His sheep. He's promised to do that. He will do that. So He shortens the time frame. Here's the next thing I want you to see in this text, which is important. The Lord shuts in Noah's family. That's in chapter 7 and verse 16. That may sound insignificant to you, but you've never built an ark with multiple levels and animals. You don't just swing that baby closed. You don't have any hydraulics. It's not designed for you to close the door, for one thing. And guess what? If you had 40 days and 40 nights hammering your house and you were the builder, how'd you feel about it? You ever seen what water can do? A deluge of water pounding any building? Our best construction? Imagine what it was like if Noah was responsible for the safety of those animals and his own life. I like Spurgeon on this one. Uh, a couple of quotes from Spurgeon's sermon. He has a sermon, a sermon called um, uh, The Lord Shuts in Noah. And it's called, If Noah Had Shut Himself In, He Might Come Out Again. <laughs> I'm not sure he was talking about the nature or just the product, <laughs> right? Because if, it, if our salvation depended on ourselves, if me staying safe in Christ depended on me staying in Christ, would I do okay? No, what do I need? I need the hand of the Lord on my life holding me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. Spurgeon says, never has a soul perished trusting in Jesus, and never shall a soul so perish. For though salvation is so difficult that the righteous scarcely are saved. Can we say that line? Let's not have happy-go-lucky five steps to better parenting. The truth of the gospel according to Jesus is, you'll hardly make it if you're left to yourself. It's hard in a broken world. It's hard as broken people. You don't need five steps. You need a Savior. You don't need to find solutions to correct things. You need a Savior to be Lord over everything. Because unless the Lord builds the house, my friends, unless the Lord builds the ark, 
So the assurance that every Christian has is that God himself will keep eternally secure all those who he calls to himself. Isn't that the good news? Isn't that what Romans is teaching that we've just read? So I want to go to that text because we keep coming back to it in in the service. And so let's go to Romans chapter 8. Go to that passage of scripture that we all love. And and we memorized this week about things working together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. See this text of scripture? Look at what it says. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to whose purpose? Yes. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Who are we talking about? Jesus there. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. What shall we say to these things? Can you answer that for me? Say it together. If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you believe that? Where are we looking? Are we looking to ourselves? Are we looking to the mirror? Are we look at Where are we looking? We're looking to God. That's Genesis. It's God who secures his people. God shut Noah in. Let me walk through this text with you and break it down for you. How does God shut his people in in the gospel? Number one, he shuts us in through his affections. Now, you know what that means? Look at chapter 8. As we go through this text in chapter 8 of Romans and we read through it, it says, For those he, what? Foreknew. You know what foreknowledge means here? It doesn't simply mean that God knows his people, he knows everybody. Foreknowledge is talking about the, the, the kind of language that's used in the book of Genesis. You know what happened when Adam knew Eve? They had babies. It says, technically, Adam knew Eve and they had Seth. This foreknowledge is the love of God set upon his people. And that's why Romans 8, the theme of Romans 8 is what? What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? That's the argument. So hold your finger there and go to one of these texts. The the foundational starting point of this whole story is not our love for God, but his love for God. For us, so Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in what? Love. Now, in the Greek, that could be in love at the end of his choosing, or in love could be at the beginning of his predestining, but the explanation for our salvation is what? His love. His love. And so when God shut us in, how did he shut us in? With his love. He shut us in Christ by the love. God demonstrated his love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Do you believe that? It's God. See, this is the thing. It's not my love that sustains my relationship with God. It's God's love for me. You did not love me. I loved you. We love him because he first loved us. Isn't that glorious? And so this is the thing you've got to fight in the middle of the cancer battle, in the middle of the struggle, in the middle of the heartache. His love was set upon me because he is love. His love wasn't set upon me because I'm lovable. Because I was loving. 
God demonstrated his love towards us while I was yet a sinner. Christ died for me. Thank God for God's love. So you have to start there. The enemy will tell you that you're suffering because God doesn't love you. The enemy will tell you you're struggling because your faith isn't big enough. The enemy will shift it all away to the momentary circumstantial nature of you, your faithfulness, your affections, your relationship with God. My dear friends, salvation begins and ends with God. That's what God said to Jonah. Salvation is of the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Secondly, in Romans, it says God shuts us in by his sovereign predeterminations. How do you like those big words? But he says in chapter 8, Romans 8, verse 28, or verse 29, for those he foreknew, he foreloved, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So you've got to have that in your mind that when God set his love upon you, he had determined that you would be fully sons and daughters of God. Isn't that great news? And so the the wave, if you want to have it, of divine providence and planning and purpose is that God has ordained all things to work together for good. Now, that doesn't always feel good, does it? But what is He purposed? What is He predestined you to become? First, he, yeah, Christ is the firstborn of many brothers, right? That's what he says there, that he's going to bring many brothers into glory, that you're going to be children of God. And so the, the, the grand narrative, this is why you've got to put your story in God's story and not the other way around. You've got to put your understanding of self under your understanding of God because we often turn it around, right? When things go bad, when the world goes dim and dark, what do we think? Where are you, God. And we start to develop a theology around a God who has left the scene. Elvis has left the building. Jesus has left the church. You know, he's kind of been, where are you in the middle of my suffering? I'll tell you what it is. God has destined his people to become full sons and daughters of Christ. And not theoretical sons, but conformed to the image of his son. The wave is that which will produce holiness in you. Isn't that good news? Doesn't mean you understand everything. It just means that no suffering is wasted in the hands of God. No suffering is pointless. God has predestined you to be adopted as his children and that you might be fully his. Not theoretically. So at the least, the very, it's going to take a lot of work to make me more like Jesus. I'll tell you that. You guys might not be a big work, but I'm a big project. You just ask my parents, my wife, my kids. Right? That's what he does. He, he brings in. He also shuts us up in his act of regeneration. Notice in Romans chapter 8 what he says. This might be a little trickier for some of you, but he uses in chapter 8, verse 28, those who are what? Called according to his purpose. And then in chapter, nine, 20, chapter 8, 29, he says that he's predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son in order that Jesus might become the firstborn of many brethren. And then it says, and those he predestined, he called. Now, when we talk about the calling of God, it's not God wishing in heaven somebody would come around. It's God effectually transforming us. It's God calling his sheep and his sheep hearing his voice. Aren't you glad he does that? Because some of you parents, have you ever called your kids? 
And how responsive are they all the time when they're playing Minecraft? Right? Or whatever they're doing? Right? Uh, oh, I didn't hear you. Liar, liar, your pants are on fire. I lived in a small town. I had to come home from playing street hockey when the, when the church bells rang. Somehow the bells that I heard every other day, if we were going into overtime, couldn't be heard in my heart and head. This is not about God calling and wishing. This is about God calling powerfully, triumphantly in the gospel of Jesus Christ and effectually making you His people. When the winds are blowing, when the cold is, is acute, when, when the world is dark, God is still calling a people to Himself. So let's go to John chapter 6. Let me give you a couple of texts that teach this. John does, if you want to read John's gospel, just go read John's gospel on this. This is, this is a key point in John's theology of the Father. But in John chapter 6, go there. There's a time where Jesus is teaching and a whole bunch of people bail because he tells them that unless they eat his flesh and drink his blood, they can't eat the, uh, enter the kingdom. And his disciples pull him aside and say, that is, this is really not a good church growth strategy. Right, you keep preaching this, it'll be just us. And Jesus said, I'll keep preaching this and it'll be just me. Right? But listen to what it says in John six sixty. When the disciples heard what he said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, wow, gr the disciples grumbled. So we're not the only ones. And he said, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Listen to this line. It's the Spirit who gives life, and the flesh is what? No help at all. If I start talking sales pitchy to this crowd, I'm telling you, they won't come to me because it takes the Spirit, not flesh. No one will come. The words that I have spoken to you are what? Spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who, were, uh, who would not believe and who it was who would betray him. Who's that? That's Judas. And he said, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless the Father grants it. You understand what he's saying there? Unless God makes it possible, unless God does that, unless God is effectually speaking into our lives. Go to chapter 10. This is one, probably one of your favorite passages in the Gospel of John. John chapter 10. And he says um, about being the good shepherd. You know that passage where Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd? John chapter 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down for my, my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also and what will they do? They will listen to my voice. What's one of the signs that you're a sheep? Not asleep, a sheep. You'll hear his voice. Now go down later in chapter 10 because he gets a little debate with the people around him and they want, they want him to catch him and, can, and make him say he's the Christ. And Jesus says in John 10, 25, I told you and you do not believe. They're not willing to believe. He says, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness. You guys have seen miracle after miracle after miracle. But you do not believe me, why? Because you're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, they 
follow me. I will, ne- I will give them eternal life and they will what? Never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Isn't that great news? My Father has given them to me, is greater than all. No one's to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Isn't that great, glorious truth? That He will not let you go. The Father and the Son are in on this. And He doesn't say to you, you are, you, you do not, He says, you do, you are not, He doesn't say, I've got to make sure I say this right, that you are not my sheep because you do not believe. It's an important line. He says, you do not believe because you're not my sheep. That's a difficult text. But you and I need to understand what's being said here. Salvation is of the Lord. And unless the Lord calls, and unless the Lord brings life, it's not flesh, it's spirit and life. That's why Jesus talks about to Nicodemus that you must be what? You must be born Again, so God shuts us in in the act of regeneration. If God, if God causes you to see, you'll hear His voice. If God breathes life on you, right? If He gives it to you. That's why there's no boasting at Waterbrook. There's nobody who gets up and gives their testimony and says, I was smarter, more righteous, better than the rest of you. You know what we stand up and say? I was dead in my trespasses and sins, but praise God according to His grace. He made me alive in Christ Jesus. But God, that's the story, beginning and end his grace and that's what you got to believe when those storms are raging he who called me breathed life into me effectually i didn't go running to him he came to me he won't let me go he won't let me go god shuts us in in the act of regeneration if you're back in romans chapter 8 those he called he what justified this is the great truth of the gospel The safest place in the world is in Jesus. The work is finished. Christ died on the cross for your sins. So that's why in Romans chapter 8, he will say later on, who will bring any charge against God's chosen ones, God's elect? Who will bring any charge against them? It's God who justifies. It doesn't matter what anybody says. It only matters what God says. And God says, I am satisfied with my son. It is finished at the cross. Your sins are forgiven. Are you forgiven? Have you come to Christ? Then what do you have to fear? Right? Storm can't turn you away. You you have the accuser come along saying, oh, I'm sorry, John Mark, but you should have stuck in there with Paul and Barnabas on that first trip. Anybody ever should have shared the gospel and you didn't? Anybody been ashamed of the Lord and now you're ashamed you were ashamed of the Lord? Doesn't the enemy want to come along and say to you, man, you're a mess. How could you? How dare you? How would you? What's the answer to every accusation of the enemy? But God. It's not what you say, Satan. It's not what you say, Kevin. It's not what anyone says, It's what God has said to Christ. It is finished. You are forgiven. I am satisfied. That's what holds us, right? And nothing can snatch us away from that. No one can remove us from that. He shuts us in in justification. When Christ died and rose again, he secured for us our eternal salvation. And no one can bring any charge 
against God's elect. And then God shuts us in his process of glorification. Those he justified, he also glorified. So if we go back to Romans 8, which 28 that we memorized, and think about it for a moment, so we know that God, that in all things, God, no, I always, I got the, my old NASB translation in there, I got to keep adjusting to the ESV, for we know that all things work together for good to those that are, love God and are called according to his purpose, or one, some, tra- there's probably three translations mixed together there, but, but when we say all things work together for good, what are we saying? That God is working to make us into the likeness of his son. We, though we're, uh, the outer man is fading, the inner man is being renewed day by day. We are going from glory to glory. So when you're suffering, what can you say? Consider it pure joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, right, does what? Produces? Right. Instead, oh, we got three different translations going there too. James 1 and 1 Peter both say the same thing. That you may be complete, lacking nothing. That's the goal of trials. You see, nothing's wasted. So even when the world seems dark, my dear friends, what is God doing in a culture where the world's going dark, where hostility is against gospel? What is He doing? He's making us into the image of His Son, and He's preparing us for eternity so that we know none of the suffering we are encountering is, Paul says in chapter 8 of Romans, it's worth comparing the glo- for the glory that will be revealed in us and to us at the coming of Jesus Christ. When we get to heaven, we will not look back and say, well, that was a wasted life or that was a wasted trial, or that was a meaningless struggle, we will see that Jesus redeemed it all. Nothing was wasted in the hand of God. You see, God shut us in in Christ so that all sins and struggles could not destroy us, but it could only work together for our good. And our good is our eternal salvation and sharing in Christ's Christ, Christ eternal likeness. Isn't that good news? Friends, are you shut in in Christ? You're safe in Him. From beginning to end, from now to eternity, from eternity past to eternity come, let the devil do what he's made. He's damned, I'm not. He's lying and accusing me because he wants me to believe that his story is my story. My story is not his story. Christ did not die for Satan, but he died for sinners like me. Shut in, shut in. Shut in. God shut us in in the gospel in Jesus Christ. Quickly, let's go to the next couple. The Lord shifts his focus. I just want you to see in chapter 8, verse 1 of Genesis, it says these words, the Lord remembered Noah. Now just think about that for a moment because it doesn't mean that God was distracted. Who was keeping Noah the whole time the flood was going on? God. Who was securing him? God. Who was protecting him as the waves, the horrific waves of the wrath of God were being poured out on the earth? Who was protecting him? It was God keeping him. God hadn't vacated and then suddenly got, oh, you know how, you ever do that? You ever, I've done that with my kids. I remember when Kathy was like four 
I got home from church. We're doing a Bible conference. I got home from church. My wife got home from church. We're looking at each other going, you don't have the kids? (laughs) A few minutes later, a car pulls up. Somebody at church, my daughter hops out with this eye look. You forgot me. (laughs) We forget one another, don't we? God never forgets us. What does it mean that he remembers Noah? I believe that what it actually means is that the wrath of God is but for a moment. But a shout of joy is coming in the morning. That God's wrath is not his normal work. So that's why I want to argue against this. God does not delight that the wicked perish. Wrath is not what he loves to do. Romans chapter 9 actually teaches that God could pour out his wrath, but he would have mercy on whom he would have mercy. He would have compassion on whom he would have compassion. He is not obligated to show mercy. He's not obligated to show compassion. He's under no obligation to any of us as sinners except for to condemn us. Because the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, so I, I have this text in Ezekiel chapter 30, therefore God said to Israel, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord, repent and turn from your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions that you have committed. Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Can you do that on your own? No, that's the tragedy of sin. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Now listen to the sign. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord, so turn and live. So God has had to act in wrath because he's a holy God, but it is not his normal work. It's his strange work. For eternity, his delight will be to show mercy towards his people. So we'll go to the next slide here, Lise. Oh, never mind. I'll go to my next note. <laughs> not on the slide here but in this i want you to take your bible and go to revelation chapter 7 oh it is there sorry <laughs> it's probably the order i put it in revelation chapter 7 in verse 13 to 17 you got one of these heavenly scenes and if you study revelation you'll know that it cycles uh through in terms of the triumphant work of christ on behalf of his church And so in Romans chapter 7, verse 13, then one of the elders addressed John, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white. Where? In the blood of the Lamb. Through Jesus Christ. And then he says, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will what? shelter them with his presence and they shall hunger no more neither thirst no more neither the sun strike them nor any scorching heat does that remind you of psalm 121 the sun will not strike you by day nor the moon by night under the shelter of the lord for the lamb is in the midst of the throne and he will be their what shepherd he will guide them to springs of living water and god will wipe away every tear of their eyes isn't that a glorious picture Tired and weary and broken and bruised, but Jesus will wipe away, the Lord will wipe away every tear from our eyes. These are people who suffered for the gospel. 
in a time of great difficulty. And so that's what I believe we're learning in that Genesis, that the Lord remembered Noah, and we're to be reminded that He won't forget us and our faithfulness and our following Him, our sacrifices and our suffering. He will remember us, and remembering us means mercy and grace and healing and help in the midst and at the end of all our trials and troubles. What a glorious promise and hope. Let me give you the last one here. Go to the next one. I want you to see this text because it's interesting. Go to Genesis chapter 8, the end of, end of the chapter. Sometimes we get pictures of God talking to himself. And it's important that you see this because that's what's going on here. Something's happening at the end of the flood where God makes a decision. And the decision is not between God and Noah, it's between God and God. So it says, Then Noah took and built an altar to the Lord, took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, that's verse 20 of chapter 8, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And then the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, and the Lord said in his heart. Now what's interesting here is he comments about what's in man's heart, but he functions on what's in his heart. Because he says in this text, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's... What's in man's heart? Evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now if you read Second Peter, he's going. the whole earth is going to be consumed in fire. So you read that and go, is God changed his mind in his heart? And the answer to that is no. But let me give you a, Let's go back to Revelation 7, that passage we were just in. And uh, go a little earlier in the chapter. And I'll, I'll show you what I think God's saying there. Because when God... Um, look at Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. When God um, decided to destroy the earth with the flood, who was left? Yeah, just Noah and his family. And God said, if I, if I just base this on what's in human hearts, what's going to happen again? I'm just going to destroy everybody all over again. And I don't want to do that. So what God decreed he would do, what God decided, is that he wouldn't save just one man and his family he would save people from every tribe and tongue and nation. That's where we're going with Abraham. You will be the father of many nations. And so God would never again destroy the earth and save one family. Now he would save people from every tribe and tongue and nation. So go to Revelation chapter 7. If we think about that multitude that was before the throne that came out of the tr great tribulation, what does it say in chapter 7 verse 9? After this I looked and behold a what? A family? A man? A great multitude that no one could number. Is that not a different story? This is your God. From every nation 
from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out to the Lord with a loud voice, what? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb and all the angels were standing around the throne and all the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their face before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that a glorious scene? This is not opening the ark and one family coming out. This is opening the heavens and the nations pouring out to the glory of God. That's what God vows to do at the end of Genesis 8. I don't know about you, but I can't wait. So several years ago, I don't know if we got this quote at the end here. We've been talking about this is the Lord, not us. I, one of the most famous sermons in the last decade was David Platt's sermon at the 2012 T4G. I was there when he preached this sermon. You can get it online everywhere. It's quoted all the time now. So as you have heard David Platt, he got up and he spoke on this subject and you could almost not stand at the end of the sermon. This was down in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And Platt made this statement during the sermon, I have one overarching truth that I want to communicate as clearly and biblically as possible. One overarching truth, here it is, a high view of God's sovereignty fuels death-defying devotion to global missions. What he's saying here is, if God is God, then the nations will be saved. And we don't have to fear, and we don't have to tremble, we don't have to fear looking in the mirror. We don't have to fear reading the news. And we don't have to fear what the nations and the kings say. We just have to ask one question. Who is king? And who is Lord? And will he build this church? And shall the gates of hell prevail against it? And the answer is, he shall reign. He shall. And if you get that clear in your head, then my dear friends, you have nothing to fear. You have no one to fear. What drives us is that this, this one statement is what defines Christians. Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Do you confess that today? Amen. Do you believe that today? Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Let's pray over our struggles and our fears and our anxieties. Oh God, as we look at a dark world, we often lose sight of a great God. When we hear the lives of Satan, we forget the Word of God. When we look in the mirror and see the way we see ourselves, the world sees ourselves, or Satan sees us, we tremble. But when we see ourselves in Christ, chosen before the foundation of the world, clothed in His righteousness, destined for glory, all things working for good. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Speak to every heart now. Speak to every heart. We ask this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
and ask the ushers to take the offering, and we're going to sing together. Let's sing of our Lord and our hope and our salvation. Isn't that great news? That line, it says, why should I gain from his reward? Do you know what the reward is that Christ gets for his death and resurrection? He gets the nations. And because he gets the nations, we get him. It's a glorious picture. Why should I gain from his? He did it all. His reward is my salvation. So we're going to go and have a break, come back in 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes if you want, grab a coffee, refreshment. If you want to just stay and pray somewhere with people, feel free, but then we'll come, those of you who want to hear from Ron. And, uh, but would you stand and let me pray a blessing over all of us as we go out in hope to our nation, to the nation. So Father, as we leave now, and to go out, dear God, as we go to hear Ron share about Afghanistan, we just commit ourselves to Jesus. And we come to you, dear God, and we thank you. We, all, we always need to see the light because the dark often eclipses um, our hopes. So thank you, dear God, for the gospel. Thank you that you are God. Thank you for the line, but God. And now, dear God, I pray, go with your people and give them strength and hope and joy and peace, love and life, and may the nations come to Christ, for he is worthy. He is worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day today in the Lord. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to find out more about Waterbrook Christian Church located in Victoria, Minnesota, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed day.